This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome back. Leadership in Action. That is us. You're on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 111. I'm uh, Mike Yuseem, your host tonight. My good friends, my co- uh, co-hosts uh, are not going to be here this evening. Uh, with that said, we're going to now bring on our second guest tonight. His name is Mark Nevins, co-author of a new book called What Happens Now? Reinvent Yourself as a Leader Before Your Business Outruns You. And it's that last phrase, of course, that really certainly catches my attention. Uh, what's happening this year is going to be different from what's happening next year. And what it takes to lead at this uh, particular moment may not be, and that's, the, I think, the whole point of this um, this book that uh, Mark is responsible for with a co-author of uh, making certain that you're ready to lead in ways you haven't necessarily led before. We're going to talk Mark, with Mark about that, but just a couple more words about him. He is a consultant and advisor, has worked with uh, many organizations. He's the president of Nevins Consulting. Earlier in his career, he worked uh, with learning and development uh, internationally with Booz Allen Hamilton. And he also uh, had uh, similar roles in human resource management and beyond for Corn Ferry, uh, the very large, uh, in fact, international executive search firm. So, Mark, great to have you on the program. Welcome. Well, thank you, Mike. It's great to be here. Mark, I'm going to pick up on this uh, subtitle, very intriguing, Reinvent Yourself as a Leader Before Your Business Outruns You. So why are businesses outrunning leaders uh, certainly often enough to lead you to write the book? Well, you know, a lot of it has to do with the kind of volatile and complicated world we live in. Um, And we could talk, I'm sure, quite a bit about that. But I think the core of the issue really is that leaders, and I work with a lot of different kinds of executives in different industries, um, typically more senior folks, but successful people become victims of their own success. You build something that's fantastic, you generate a lot of momentum with it, and then you wake up one day and you say, my gosh, what do I have here? This whole thing seems to be bigger than I can possibly manage. What do I do? You know, Do I have mm. to sell to somebody? Do I have to maybe go out and find somebody who's going to replace me to do this? Have I reached the point where, as it looked like the Peter Principle in the old days, have I sort of you know, risen to my highest level of incompetence as a result of my great success in building this thing? And, uh, Mark, just to take a kind of an era-specific look at this issue, I've often heard it said, my guess is you've said it, I've often said it myself, and I hear it from others, that cycle time for change has shrunk. It has. Yeah. Uh, so what a decade ago was was a, a five year change is now like it could be a five month change. What, what do you think about the argument? I think it's absolutely true, um, and I I was uh, I noticed this recently. So um, in my consulting work, I'm I'm very I have a PhD in literature. I have an untypical background for people who do what we do, and I've always believed that you cite your sources. I don't have to only uh, present my clients with things that are my own intellectual property. And one of my favorite sources is, of course. Um, Jim Collins. And I love the the work that he did with Jerry Porras on understanding how to build a company vision. There's a great HBR article from 1996 that lays out a a really useful model. And I always chuckle because the concept is you have to have a 20-year plan. Uh, and my clients love this, like 20, I mean, how about a 20-month plan, right? Yeah. And um, it's very rare when I work with clients. I do a lot of work on vision and strategic direction and you know, crafting a purpose. And uh, we say, Let, let's pick the amount of time we want to look out, and particularly in, in high growth, you know, at private equity-held companies. And three years is about as far as you can go out. Hmm. Now, I don't know if, you know, I'm just getting old and, and I can't keep up with the pace of the world, but I think if you... <clears throat> I mean, you're a business school professor. You tell me if you if you take a long view, the cycles do seem to be getting tighter. Yeah, totally. Mark, to be a little bit colorful about it, um, back maybe 20, 25 years ago, when the Japan way was kind of defining how companies worldwide ought to think about themselves, Japanese firms uh, sort of on a roll. This is back in the 1980s. It is said. I never saw this directly, but it is said some firms, some of the more successful firms, had a 100-year strategic plan. So that uh, may have been out there at the time. At the other end of the spectrum, we had uh, a couple tech companies on campus a couple years ago, 
And one of the tech executives said we stopped strategic planning because whatever we plan this month or this year is not going to be valid uh, a few months out there. So, uh, Mark, just thinking about the companies you work with uh, between 100 years and no years, what do you think the time horizon is for companies as they do have to, you have to think with a vision, you've got to think strategically. But what's the average, what's the typical time horizon these days for planning? Well, the work that I do, and look, I should be clear, I work with a lot of very senior executives in big companies. I have a very small consulting firm, so I am not doing, um, you know, global strategic planning with Fortune companies. I do a lot of work with small and mid-sized companies, mm-hmm. companies. and, um, you know, I, I find the sweet spot's usually 18 to 24 months. I mean, I think that's enough time that you can put out there some aspirational goals. Uh, you can think about driving transformational change, but, you know, the competitive landscape changes so quickly. Uh, you know, senior leadership changes so quickly. I, I haven't yeah. looked at the numbers recently, but what is it, two point something years is the average tenure of a CEO right now. Maybe it's up to three point something. Um, these are just very, very short periods of time, and the change can be so absolutely, um, you know, cat- catastrophic would be the word that would come to mind in some cases because it's the uh, it's the, the losers who often become the most poignant case study. And, you know, to, to play that forward, it does put a premium, and this is a big piece of what you argue in the book, on seeing the future before it has arrived. Uh, bringing the future into the present is one way Then we take what we expect to see, let's say, two or two years, three years out, and make certain we begin to anticipate that and prepare for it now. Here's the hard part. Love to get your thoughts on it. To see the future, <laughs> no crystal ball that I've ever picked up actually works. Yeah. And so as you work with some of your clients and they're saying, okay, Mark, how do I understand where I need to get to when nobody else out there is uh, giving me much of a model to anticipate that future? How do I think ahead? How do I think strategically? What, what's your thought? Boy, that's an awful big question. Um, you know, my first response is that uh, the future is always much clearer in hindsight. Yes, it is. But we don't always have that benefit. I, I do think that there's a real value to business leaders looking outside of their company and looking outside of their industry. Time and time again in my work, you know, even going back 20, 25 years, I started out in, in management consulting with a wonderful firm, Booz Allen. And even back in the late 90s, as we were thinking about reinventing ourselves for the 21st century, um, I thought we were very, very insular. We were always looking inside. Mm. We weren't looking outside at um, not just what our competitors were thinking about doing and how we could move to the spaces they weren't moving to. And clearly it was, at that point, Anderson and, um, and McKinsey. But looking at where the world was going, uh, it was you know, very powerful for me. I was running a bunch of internal functions globally, people development, you know, all the way from brand-new MBAs joining the firm up through senior partner training. And, um, you know, we didn't, um, we didn't do any of that kind of work for our clients. And frequently, the last, last couple of years there, they'd send me off to, hey, we've just eviscerated the, the sourcing function of this big company. Can you go and kind of let's help them feel better about this and try and kind of survive and move forward, take some of the skills that you, that you teach our people and, and bring yep. them for there. And um, I'd do it, and we'd get great results and actually, you know, get a big check. And I'd say, we should probably be in this business. Oh, no, 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 no. we're not going to. We don't do that. So um, I think asking leaders to look outside their business, look outside their industry, and I think in many cases look outside business. I mean, this would be a a digression, but I think um, business people should not just read business books. Hmm. You can pick that up if you want. Yep. Well, terrific. Mark, I want to actually uh, reference, I think it's Chapter 1 in your book. It's got a very intriguing title, and I think we all want to know the answer to what's in the title as soon as I uh, express it, why leaders stall. And it's, it's a powerful phrase because, of course, nobody wants to stall, especially if you carry responsibility for others. So let's, let's, um, let's get into it. If you were a literature uh, professor, let's unpack it. Uh, oh, yes, unpack. You, you know that phrase? Like the hot ver- no, it's, that verb is all over the place. Yeah, I, I, totally. So uh, taking uh, the stalling function, why, why do some people stall? Well, the reality is we're all going to stall. And, um, you know, you know the old expression, it's our strengths that become our weaknesses. Uh, our success is wonderful, except when we can't figure out where we go next from there. And you know, when my co-author John and I sat down together about two years ago and thought about writing this book, we said, 
in the work that we do, we, we've both been leaders, we've had C-suite roles, we consult regularly, we've been on boards, we are on boards. Um, why do we see leaders stall? And um, it's not the bad ones who stall, it's the good ones. This became a very, very interesting question for us. Leaders stall because they come to a point where they have to fundamentally do something differently. And the thing they really have to do differently is reinvent themselves. They, I mean, we think about as we're, as we're leading organizations, functions, companies, big or small, I must change the company. I must change the product. I must change the system. I must even change my people in some ways. I restructure them. I bring in new ones. Um, in the work that I do, I just don't see a lot of leaders saying, how do I need to change? What do I need to do differently? Um, you know, a theme mm-hmm. that comes up again and again in the book and that comes up again and again in my coaching work is I ask leaders, where are you focusing your time and your energy? Those are your two most finite resources. And if you're doing this, it means you're not doing that. And people stall typically when they're not focusing their time and energy in the right place. Mark, to bring that to life uh, tangibly, I guess would be the right word here, could you describe, obviously naming no names whatsoever here, uh, one of your clients who was in a stall, how did they get there? Uh, and how did they get out of that stalling pattern? Right. Well, you know, in the book, we talk about seven very different and specific kinds of stalls. So I could pick any one of these stalls. Um, I could, I'm certainly happy to, to list out the stalls for you. I think you'd recognize them all pretty yep. clearly. Um, one that I see a lot, and it's actually it's a good one to pick, is it's, it's the one where I most often get called in. It's There's a problem with the senior team. And the problem is, fundamentally, the team is not aligned around the purpose of the team itself, which is, sounds like a bit of a metaphysical question, but it's a really, really significant one. What is the purpose of this team? What is our role in this organization? Just beyond, you know, kind of basic governance matters, um, are we all on the same page around what we're trying to accomplish? Uh, do we have a set of collective mutual goals, not just our individual and functional goals? And how are we working together to to, um, to achieve those things? And um, sometimes it's the best leaders who have the strongest personalities who essentially have to be the conduit through which the rest of the team works. And they haven't stepped back and said, at this point in the game, how do I need to think differently about how I'm leading this team and how I'm empowering this team to be a more effective team? Yep. So, Yep. There's been many, many books written on effective teams, um, and a lot of them cover what you need to do to build a strong team. Not a lot of them talk about how do you need to think differently about your own role. All right, um, uh, Mark, I'm going to imagine I'm going to make up the following phone call. I call you. I've read your book. I've heard that you you and your co-author, John Hillen, you um, help people like me as a stalled manager think about this. And I call and I say, I feel like I'm stalled out. And it's probably true. I'm going to help you under, help me understand if that's really the case. But I am who I am. I've got a set of capabilities I've been using for 15 or 18 years. And so, yes, I'm stalled, but I may not be able to get over the the barrier to reinvent myself if it's heavy lifting. What, what's your guidance? Well, I'd say let's sit down and talk about this. Um, let's try to understand what it is that you are trying to accomplish. What are your goals, near-term goals in whatever role you're in, in the company you're in, in the profession you're in, in your life? Uh, I think that's what I call the first uh, corner of the triangle. The second corner of the triangle is let's understand your stakeholders, the, the universe of people with and through whom you will or will not accomplish your goals. Um, and then the third piece of that is, how are you understanding yourself? Do you have a realistic view of yourself, your strengths and your weaknesses? Do you know how you come across to others? Do, um, do you understand how you, uh, how you behave when you're under pressure? Let's take a look at these three major components, which are all obviously interrelated, right? You're a leader. You're not an individual contributor. So if you're achieving your results, you're achieving them with and through others. Let's sit down and look at these three things. And, you know, sometimes I do, I do think executives come to a fork in the road where you say, I can either try to get to the next level, or I can realize that the level I'm at right now, or maybe even the level I was at right before this one, was a better level for me. Hmm. Mark, there's a notion out there, you no doubt have uh, dealt with this throughout your professional career, that many, but maybe not all people, can indeed reinvent themselves. 
the optimistic view is we're all malleable. If we uh, kind of put our shoulder to the device, we can push forward and become somebody. Uh, we, we can we can change in ways that are, are definable. The more pessimistic view, though, is that uh, at a certain point, we kind of lock into behavioral styles. we got a personality. Uh, our family is our family. And thus, the more pessimistic view is that reinvention for some people is going to be a big stretch. What do you think? I, I, I think the answer is it depends. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, there's the great expression that there are no second lives uh, in American history, and I think that's not true. I think we see lots and lots of them. I mean, um, you know, one of the great leaders everyone adulates these days is Steve Jobs, and he had at least two, maybe three or four lives. Um, I, I think when you, when you get down to the core of the issue, when you're working with an individual, um, a lot of it comes down to self-awareness, hmm. and it comes down to the recognition that you are not going to change who you are but you can change what you do. And this is a big part of my work. Hmm. I don't call myself an executive coach, but I, I think I do a lot of what people would call executive coaching as well as advisory work. And um, a lot of the kind, of kind of the very intimate dialogue I have with my clients is around trying to understand, uh, are you able to do things differently? Are you able to be a different kind of leader, the kind of leader your people want and need you to be? And that can be very simple. I mean, um, in Myers-Briggs terms, we all know the Myers-Briggs, I am actually a very, very strong introvert. Nobody believes that, but I am. I'm happy to show you my profile. Um, I didn't find pursuing an academic career would be gratifying to me because I wouldn't have the kind of impact I want to have. So I've learned with a great deal of tact how to behave like an extrovert. But at the end of the day, when I go home, my wife looks at me and she says, okay, it's going to be a movie night tonight. I can tell you just have nothing left. Yep. So I do think people can change. And I picked a very simple example there. I do think people can fundamentally change how they behave as leaders if they want to, but recognizing it will take work and there's some tax to be yep. Mark, hold that thought for just a minute. I do need to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Mike Yassim, and we're talking with Mark Nevins, co-author of this new book that's been in our discussion, What Happens Now? Reinvent Yourself as a Leader Before Your Business Outruns You. Mark, I wonder if you could describe, uh, I guess I would call it like an extreme, an extreme remake. So somebody that you work with or saw or witnessed who genuinely reinvented himself or herself. What were they before? What did they become? And how the heck did they do it? Yeah, I mean, look, I, there are extreme examples. I can think of a couple. Um, I was doing a lot of work before the financial crisis on Wall Street because I live in New York and um, – they have money, and they, mm. and they at that point were were trying to use executive coaching. I think, in essence, to break to fix broken people, right? Which, as we know now, I mean, at, at that point, if we even called it executive coaching, it was not very sophisticated. It was, you know, this person's got some rough edges. Can you take the edges off? Um, you know, I mean, the classic, to put it pretty bluntly, the classic um, call was, "Hey, we've got this guy, and he is making us a great deal of money." And everybody hates him. Hmm. Can you help us? And my normal reaction after my first was, of course I can, because I, you know, I just started a coaching practice. I want to help you out and also stay in business. But after a while, my reaction became, well, probably not, because my hunch is that if he's making you a lot of money, you're paying him a lot of money. And therefore, as far as he's concerned, sure, maybe he doesn't use the right fork at dinner, but you know, I'm, I'm doing what I need to do, and I'm getting recognized for that. So I... Um, I, would, I, I once worked with a guy like this, and he was very proud of himself, and we just met, and he said, look, I would like uh, to invite you to my team meeting. I'd like you to observe me and see what a great leader I am, and then we can talk about how I can become an even better leader. And I, I followed him in, and I, I, I sat in the corner, which I don't normally do because I think an event observed is changed by the observation, but at this point, uh, this kid, I did it, and I, I watched him. And at the end of the meeting, he, you know, he took in his office. He said, well, what do you think? And I'm not a very mischievous person, but I found myself saying, well, I think if your intention was to alienate everybody in the room, you did a really great job. And he looked at me, and I'm thinking to myself, why did I just say that? You know, I'm a pretty reserved guy. And there was a major aha, and he said, really? And I said, yeah. I mean, look at their reactions. Are you paying attention? Yeah. You're, you're spinning this great story, and actually you might even be right. You know, my wife, who's one of my great coaches, um, said to me 20 years ago, Mark, you can be right and have a bad outcome. And I said, honey, how's that possible? Uh, you know, I, just, yep. yeah, I can't hmm. see it. And so that began a, a very interesting journey. And 
two years later, and I'm not taking credit for this, two years later, he was two levels higher in the firm, hmm. a significant international function. And, and what went into that? Just give, give us a, kind of the graphic feel. What did he do? How did he, what did he change? Well, you know, we did some, we did some classic executive coaching work. We tried to help him understand what his natural style was and places where that style would be very appropriate, maybe on an analyst call, where it would not be appropriate, for example, in giving feedback and developing people. He generated a lot more followership. He was willing to hear some extremely tough feedback. You know, um, corporate 360s tend to be really, really watered down because everyone's kind of playing a game of, I won't be too tough on you, and then you won't be too tough on me. And, hey, it's all going to HR anyway, so let's be careful here. When you have a really trusted advisor who's a, you know, a coach or some kind of a, of a consultant who can go out and get you unfiltered feedback and frame it in a way it's behavioral, um, he said, okay, I've, I've got to completely reinvent how I run my team, how I think about staffing my team, how I reward my people, how I sit down one-on-one with them and give them feedback. Um, I cover some of this in the book around some of the tactics of how you can do this. And, you know, this was a guy who was a real alpha dog, and he's still an alpha dog at heart, and he's still with the same company in an even bigger role now. Um, but he was willing to say, the way I am operating right now is not going to allow me to get where I want to go. When you begin to work with a client like the one you just named, I'm assuming, see if this assumption is correct, that you pretty quickly or at some point within a few weeks or uh, a month at the most – come to appreciate whether this is a learner or a resistor. And so some, some people are going to be able to hear what you're saying. Some are, are going to fight it all the way. How do you know when you've got a listener, a person who's willing to think about reinvention as opposed to a person who's just ultimately whatever they say is not going to make that transition? Yeah. Um, a lot of it's just in the behaviors, and a lot of it comes down to whether or not they demonstrate a willingness to be are they willing to think differently about themselves? Are they willing to hear how people are describing them? Um, you know, when you get called in by an executive co- as an executive coach by a, by a lead director, by a, a senior executive who's got someone they're trying to groom, you always have what we call a chemistry meeting. And I think it's very important. The, the client should meet one or two coaches, maybe two or three coaches even, and say, is this person a good fit? Can I feel comfortable with this person? And the reality is that a really good coach is using that meeting for the same reason. They're basically saying, can I work with this person? Do they want to be coached Mm. by me? Are they willing to change? So you try to ask them a lot of questions really early on to see, you know, how rigid are they? How self-aware are they? Um, I will ask questions like, describe to me what your biggest business challenges are right now. And I get a quick list of those. And I say, what are your biggest leadership challenges? Mm. That's an interesting question. I say, if you were to say, you know, what are your strengths and weaknesses? How would you describe those? What, what comes naturally to you? What doesn't come naturally to you? And so you try to play out these kinds of questions very early on. And you know, your, um, your colleague, Patty, gave, you know, set me up with a couple of the kinds of questions you, you might ask. And one of them I know is, um, what's a very, very difficult decision you've had to make? And for me, it's been two or three occasions where I've just had to fire a client. that I can't help you. And earlier in my career, I wouldn't have done that because I wanted the work. At this point, I want the impact. Uh, let's take that in one uh, further direction. We've got a few minutes from now. We're going to take a quick station break. You, you earlier in our conversation, it's been very interesting, referenced the fact that you've had some of your clients say, look, i got a, <laughs> a problem with the senior team, yep. but it turns out it was a problem <laughs> that you yourself had. Yes. Sometimes <laughs> there really is a problem with the senior team yeah. or the people around you. Uh, and that's why many people, of course, will uh, bring in new individuals for some out all all that is around that that area. How do I know when it's me versus my senior team? Yeah. Well, it's probably a little bit of both. Um, and if it is your senior team, ultimately it's you as well, because you haven't done what you need to do to understand what kind of a team do I need at this point in the evolution of this organization? What does the team need to do as a team? And then what do I need each of the individual members to do? Whenever I'm working with an executive, I'll say, think about your team as a team, and then think about them as individuals. And, you know, none of this is really rocket science. Um, you know, I think if you, if you want to get better at these kinds of things, it's very simple, but it's, again, it goes back to, am I making the time to do this? I sat yesterday with a senior executive, um, big financial services insurance company, 
Uh, he's pretty new in his role. He's promoted internally. And we just sat down and used the old classic nine box and worked through his team, several of whom are new, one of whom clearly has to go, uh, one of whom is probably going to succeed him and would like to succeed him sooner rather than later, but he's just taken the job, so probably doesn't have the same uh, point of view on that. And we had just a great conversation about saying, in terms of potential and performance, where are these people right now? Uh, where can you get them? And how are you going to deal with the non-performer? Hmm. Not that, I mean, it's a hard decision, but once you see it, you kind of get This is more difficult in terms of talking to the person and, and informing them rather than recognizing they're not the right person. And then the harder one was, this is your superstar, and she's she wants more. And what are you going to do with that? So um, it, it can be the team, and it can be the team as individuals. I don't have the right people in the right roles. Or it can be, we're just not functioning as a team. And you know, we could probably spend some time on that. What are the things that... Uh, an executive team really has to be and do, and how do they spend their time and their energy? Mark, we're going to take a, a short break here, and just to anticipate where we're going, I'm going to ask you a couple questions as soon as we come back on the air in a couple minutes now. Super. About when you get called in, how often the individual who is at issue here calls you in versus maybe the boss of that individual. So, if uh, if if your boss is inviting. Uh, if your boss has invited you to work with a subordinate, I guess the implicit question there is that a good news um, statement yeah. about the subordinate. Second question I want to come back to is this. Uh, given the fact that cycle times have shortened for just about everything, uh, decisions coming more quickly, disruptions more often, when you say reinvent yourself as a leader before your business outruns you, is this something that we have to do not just once, but maybe repeatedly? So. If you can hang on to that, everybody, Mark will be back on the air in just a minute. Just want to remind everybody that I'm Mike Useem. You're listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Stay tuned. We'll have more with Mark Nevins after the break. Welcome, everybody. You are back with Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Mike Usain. I've got a couple of colleagues who are not with me tonight, so I'm, I'm flying solo here. But we have a great guest, Mark Nevins, co-author with John Hillen of a new book. Listen carefully. What happens now? Reinvent yourself as a leader before your business outruns you. And so, Mark, just to get back to where we were just before the break there. Uh, a question about reinvention upon reinvention. Uh, is this something we ought to be doing every five years, just sort of asking the question, should we be a little bit different going ahead? Does reinvention happen in a given lifetime singly, repeatedly? What, what, what's, your, what's your thought on how often we got to reinvent before the business outruns you? Right. Well, I think you have to do it continuously. Um, and before the break, we were talking about what we think the cycle time for business is these, these days. And if it's 18 months or two years or three years, we better be thinking about reinventing ourselves more frequently than every five years. So um, I think for, for leaders, for any executive, um, and in the work that we've done in many, many different industries, public and private sector, um, when you're thinking about the people that you're responsible for, I think once a quarter you ought to be having some mm. kind of a Step, you know, step off the hamster wheel, we call it, and sort of sit back and think about where am I, where am I going, how am I going to get there, you know, what am I really good at, what do I like doing, what does the organization need from me, what does the industry need from me, what does the world need from me. And, and if you're not having those kinds of conversations with your people on about a quarterly basis, and I say quarterly because then it might happen twice a year, um, I think you're doing them a disservice, and if you're not doing it for yourself, I think yep. you're doing it so, um, I like that. By the way, I like the phrase "hamster on a wheel," and we're, we're running pretty fast. And sometimes it feels like that when it, that wheel is spinning ever so much more quickly. That said, but you're not going anywhere. Exactly, That's and so right, we're working harder, but we're still yeah. in stall. Help us appreciate some of the methods for getting off that hamster wheel and stepping back and taking a look and kind of re-questioning who you are, what you stand for, and where the heck you're going. Yeah. What, what are a couple of devices to do that? 
Yeah, well, there's, I think there's two ones that we talk about in the book. Um, one of them is actually uh, around this, this um, sort of uh, hamster wheel stall, which we call the stall in where you're focusing your time and energy. That's where we really, that comes to a point. Um, and that one. And the other one is uh, the stall right before that, which we call the stall in authority. In other words, hmm. what are your sources of authority? So let me, let me talk about those two very briefly. I'll talk about the first one, and then we can pause maybe and chat about that, and then I'll talk about the second one. Right. Um, so this whole idea of the hamster wheel, um, we came up with this idea because we were thinking an awful lot about this whole question of work-life balance, which has, has always been uh, an issue, but I think has been a really big issue for the last 10 or 15 years, particularly as the workplace has changed quite a bit. The nature of work has changed. The technology you know, doesn't allow us to leave our work. Um, my dad ran a, a very, very successful law firm, and I, mean, I think he had a fax machine, maybe. So the mm-hmm. world somehow went on. Uh, and he came home on Saturday, and he was really home. Uh, when I come home now, I'm not really home. I'm checking my mm-hmm. devices all the time. So um, this, I, I was intrigued by this idea of work-life balance as if you would just toggle back and forth between the work state and the home state. Uh, and for some people, there is no home state because they're constantly at work. And for some you know, poor performers, maybe too much of a home state. But I realized it wasn't just a toggle. It was the people who were really good at this had the ability to step back, we call pull back and elevate, and look at the whole picture. And we coined the term the third space where the idea is that home and your home life, your personal life, your family life is the first space, your work is the second space, but the third space, which doesn't have to be a physical space, is a place where you can go, whether it's when you're working out, if you have a commute. Um, I like to sit down after everyone's in bed on a Sunday night and just take a half an hour looking at the week ahead to sort of say, where am I going to be focusing myself, bringing my best self, deploying these resources that I've got, to be really effective. Hmm. Uh, and I think the people who are able to create that third space, whatever it is, are much more successful in their first and second space. And, Mark, just to reflect on that, that really interesting point, creating that space. And is this something that's a half an hour a day, a weekend off in a, a very nice resort with, uh, with no other worries? Is this something regular daily meditation, or maybe it's all the above. What are your thoughts on how to create that space? I think it's all the above, and I think it's different for different people. Um, I've got clients and friends who are huge uh, meditation advocates. Mm -hmm. I've tried it, and I can't do it. Um, I've tried yoga, and I find if I get myself in a quiet room and try to do yoga, I'm looking around for a piece of paper to write down all the great ideas I'm coming up with, and I I do not get in the right mental state. Um, For me, it's when I'm working out. uh, It's when I'm in the shower. I actually got one of those scuba boards that you can write underwater, and I keep mm. it in the shower so I can jot my ideas down because they come to me there. Uh, and I, I have that um, Sunday evening thing that's very sacrosanct. I know clients who say, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm on a plane a lot. I'm going to take one flight a week, and that's going to be my third space time. To, mm. I'm not going to get out my laptop and you know, start cleaning up my email box. I'm going to think about what are the big things that we're on the hook for this quarter, this month, this year, whatever the time frame might be. Um, I think I think you've got to figure out which one works for you. Um, there are many life hacks out there, and you can try and steal somebody else's, but at the end of the day, if it doesn't work for you, you're not going to do it, and that's not going to work. Mark, I'm going to take us back to an earlier reference uh, at a couple points in our conversation to stalling. And yeah. it's a really powerful concept. Uh, I think my guess is all of our listeners are reflecting on the last 10 or 15 years can remember a time when they felt stalled out. They uh, were not going where they wanted to go, but didn't quite know how to get to where they should be going. And in your book, you reference, uh, I think, at least seven kinds of stalls. And maybe to put a little color on that one, I feel like I'm going through a, a dark, deep forest. And who knows what kind of a poisonous snake I might step on, what kind of other um, evil possibilities are there. So to... Um, anticipate that there are maybe five, six, or maybe even seven ways to stall out. Just walk through at least a couple of those, if you would. Yeah. Well, we did spend a lot of time in this. We looked at the many, many dozens, hundreds of executives, uh, in my case, that I've coached, uh, in John's case, that he's been on the boards of or had reporting into him in some of his CEO roles, and said, what are the kinds of problems we see people struggling with, and can we categorize them in some ways? And we count with seven, and the seven are really simple. So I won't go into the technical uh, aspects. I'll just describe them in very, very simple layman's terms. Thanks. You stall when you don't have a compelling story. 
right? Human beings are narrative creatures. We want to hear a story that engages us, that inspires us, that makes us say, I want to be a part of that, right? Moses said, we're going to go to the promised land, the land of milk and honey. You're going to love it. You know, this is not mm-hmm. so great. We don't love the Pharaoh. This is going to be a good thing. Now it's going to be 40 years in the desert, but get on board with this story. I'm going to describe to you what it looks like. And, um, you know, I, I routinely think back to uh, executives I met with who, who frightened me early in my career because I would mm-hmm. try to ask them about what's the purpose of your business. And the response is always, well, to, to create shareholder value. I'd say, well, okay, you know, sorry, I, I, I'll, I'll focus on that. Say, what's the purpose of any business? How does that differ? Why would mm-hmm. I want to sign up for that business? So the purpose stall or the storytelling stall is the first one we'd like to talk about. And I'm sure you've seen that uh, very often in your work and in, in the people you've interviewed. Uh, give us a couple more stalls. The next step is the teamwork stall. We talked about that. You're creating a team. It's team zero. It's really the whole is less than the sum of the parts, if you will. You haven't sat down to figure out how do I make this a high-performing team, and what does that require me to do or not do differently? How do we meet? How do we hold ourselves accountable? How do we make decisions? How do we work through conflict? Um, the third, and maybe in some ways, Probably the second most important stall, if I had to uh, rank them, is what we call the stakeholder stall. Mm. So as you as you become, as your as your job gets bigger, as you take on more responsibility, what you realize is you have an increasingly complicated and diverse group of uh, of stakeholders. You've got the people that work for you. You've got your peers. You've got your customers. You've got your competitors. You've got your board. You've got your owners. You've got your investors. And um, a lot of people will fail because they don't sit down and think about what does this universe look like and how do I recognize that I need to be spending time with the right people on the right topics at the right time. Mm. And, you know, I think that if you look at any crisis in an organization and if you have the forensic capability, you could trace that back to a conversation that didn't happen or didn't happen in the right way, or didn't happen at the right time, or didn't happen with the right people. Mm. So the ability to manage stakeholders is very, very important. And, Mark, one of the stalls, as I recall, is your underinvestment in the development of other people, that you end up with people who are great technically or functionally, but yep. uh, they haven't come very far in, in, in their own leadership, if you will. So how common is that? What's that look like? What do you do about that? We sort of think that may be the biggest stall, or, or sort of, you know, if there was a Maslow pyramid of stalls, that would be the one up right over the top. Um, we, we strongly believe that the purpose of leaders is to help effect change. If you don't have change, you don't need leaders, you just need administrators, and to develop other leaders. So um, we'll often ask people, you know, what legacy do you want to leave behind? And um, you know, it should be, I want to leave the world a better place, but I also want to leave more leaders who've learned from me, whom I've learned from, and who are ready to pick up the baton and, um, and carry it forward. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, when you ask executives, typically, how much time do you spend developing your leaders? Oh, I'm a, I'm a great people developer. I, mm. I do that all the time. And so, well, let's get your calendar out. Let's have a look at that. And you look at the calendar and you go, I just, I'm not really seeing much time here. Mm devoted yeah. to developing people. And I don't mean, I don't mean doing performance reviews. That's important. Um, I mean sitting down and having these kinds of meaningful conversations. What's going well? What's not going well? What do I need to see you doing more of? What's going to get you in trouble? What do you need from me? How can I help you? Um, these conversations don't happen enough. And I think the leaders who do these things really, really differentiate themselves, and they're the ones who have the strongest followership. You know, to connect that with what we've heard on the program from a couple other senior people we've had in the past, when asked in an interview that they're conducting with, say, a candidate for a high office, several people have said, almost word for word, akin to one another, that one of the most valuable questions they have is to ask an individual who's a candidate, say, for a very responsible position, to identify and then describe four or five people whose current position of life, whose career they, the candidate, has significantly affected in, in helping yeah. those people to develop. So yeah, what, what do you think? I think it's a fantastic question, and I bet, um, I bet you get some awkward silences, because uh, I think people are mm-hmm. rushing to think, oh, geez, you know, do I have some people who, <laughs> well, how do I answer this question and, and, and look like I've actually devoted some time to this? Yep. Uh, 
I think you know people are. are um, I think that that really is kind of sort of separating the great leaders from maybe the great administrators or the, or the great technical people. Yep. Mark, I'm going to remind everybody that they are listening to Leadership in Action. I'm Mike Yusim. We're talking with you, Mark Nevins, president of Nevins Consulting and co-author of What Happens Now. If you got a question or a comment, give us a call. We're easily reached, 844-942-7866. Mark, with a few minutes uh, remaining here, uh, let's think about your own future. Uh, this book obviously was a labor of love and a product of the work you've done with John Hillen with many of your clients. Uh, kind of what's next in your own personal pipeline as you reinvent yourself? Right, right. Um, you know, I'm going to give you probably not a very exciting answer, which is more of the same. Uh, I didn't write this book. I don't think John did either necessarily as a commercial venture or as a platform. Uh, I think we wrote it because we really believed we'd, we'd kind of come across some insights that could help people. Um, I love what I do. I feel astonishingly just blessed to be able to do what I do for a living. Mm. People actually seem to value my time and my thoughts, and they even pay me for it. So um, mm. I will do more of, um, of what I'm doing. My business has changed a little bit over the years. It will continue to evolve. Um, you know, you had asked me to think about before the break um, who calls me. And when I was earlier in my career, it was typically – you know, a mid-level or senior executive would call me to say we want to work with somebody who's got some sharp edges or we want to work with um, developing some high potentials. Uh, these days, I'm almost only working in the C-suite with boards, with CEOs, big and small companies both. I love working with private equity-held, fast-growth companies. So I think you can get your arms around the whole enterprise, not just the leadership dimensions. Um, but I, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, and I, you know, I find I'm I'm sure I learn more from my clients than they learn from me. So I, I wake mm-hmm. up every morning really excited to do what I do. Uh, just to toss a little language back in your direction, you've got your own compelling story. So good good to hear that. Uh, before we leave uh, your passing reference a minute ago, and I did say this just before the break, if I'm a senior manager and I kind of know intuitively, even if I'm not prepared to even tell it to my partner at home, mm-hmm. that I've got some work to do, and I get a call from you or maybe my boss who says, I've hired you a personal coach to help you reinvent yourself. Is that a compliment or is it less than that? What do you think? Well, this one entirely depends. And, you know, you and I have both been doing this for long enough that we've seen a lot of change in business. And I think we've seen a lot of change in terms of how companies and more enlightened organizations think about their human capital. Clearly, Mm -hmm. in the old days, it was here's a coach, this is bad, right? You know, I haven't heard, I haven't changed, they're going to try to get somebody in to shrink my head or force me to behave differently. And um, I'm really glad that I probably joined this profession, um, or maybe I'm just lucky in terms of my clients, when that was on the way out. And I think to some extent, the, um, I think that the, the rise of millennials in the workforce, I think just the changing nature of how we think about work, um, the fact that I work in a lot of really knowledge organizations, not manufacturing organizations, maybe, um, but I don't get a lot of that. Um, Hmm. These days, um, I tend to work with organizations who use coaching to reward people. They say, you are a super high performer. Coaching is not inexpensive. It's not very scalable and leverageable. It's a one-on-one. And um, we believe in you enough that we think that you could be even better. And so I think there are there are enlightened organizations who know how to use a variety of, of leadership development tactics, one of which is executive coaching. Um, the flip side of that is that the most effective coaching happens at inflection points. Hmm. So you've just been hired into a company, and they want to make sure that you don't derail, that you kind of figure out how to acculturate and how to get, um, get good results in your first, you know, three, six, nine months when the cement is still wet. Um, you've been promoted hmm. to there's been a merger, there's been an acquisition, there's been some kind of significant change, or you really are being groomed for the next position. Uh, you're, the, you know, you're the strong internal candidate, and they know there's two or three things that they want you to work on, so you're an even more compelling candidate when the time comes. Mark, just to make a comment on that, a really interesting implicit point there, you need to reinvent yourself if your business has, has outrun you separately you need to reinvent yourself if you've kicked up one or two levels because again to use the phrase that's out there what got you to level a 
Absolutely. Is, is not going to serve you all that much. Um, it'll serve you. It's a platform, but you need more than that. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a great fan of Marshall Goldsmith's book that has that very, very that title. That very title, exactly. So, yeah, and you know, what worked yesterday is not going to work tomorrow yeah. because you have to be different, and what they need from you is going to be different. Well, let me begin to bring our conversation uh, nearly at the close of our time to focus in now just for a few minutes on the the phrase, which is old, but I've, it captures the point of learning to become a general manager. And, of course, the essence of that is uh, we all come up in some function or some expertise or we're, at, we're in engineering or maybe sales or marketing, accounting, finance, whatever it might be. But as we move up, increasingly we've got those different functions reporting to us. And even though we're not out of them, we have to appreciate them and uh, combine them into general management. As you've watched people, your clients make that transition successfully, reinventing themselves now to be a general manager, what do you think it takes on their part to indeed rise to the occasion? Well, I think it, it takes deciding earlier in your career that that's something that you aspire to. Otherwise, I think you'll wake up at some point and say, I've gone very, very deep and I have not built the breadth. Mm-hmm. Some of the consulting firms talk about a T-shape. Everyone should be a T-shape. You should be deep in some area, but you should also be very broad across all of the aspects of the business. I think earlier in your career, um, if you can find ways to move around, um, this is, you know, this, a lot of this comes down to what your personal preference is. There are some people whose single driving motivator is to be the world expert in one thing. Mm-hmm. There are others, who I think, who are more curious or a different kind of curiosity who want to understand how does the whole enterprise work? How does the whole beast not just um, this one piece of it. Um, but I think that the, the, um, the advice you'd give to somebody who's saying, someday I want to be a CEO, is to recognize two things. You have to be broadly schooled in how business works, and you have to recognize that it's not just about how much you know. And this is really one of the core ideas in the book mm. that we haven't talked about explicitly. It might be the overarching kind of takeaway, which is leaders stall because they reach points where they have to become more sophisticated. Um, the, the, the solutions they brought to, to, to deal with complex problems are not going to get them where they need to go. Earlier in our careers, we're typically looking at our technical and tactical skills, and increasingly as we get more senior, we have to depend on our strategic and interpersonal skills. Hmm. It's as much who we are as what we know and what we do. It's an intriguing term, list. Well, on for just a couple minutes here, sophisticated. I think uh, I'll put my words on that and then give us your guidance on this. As we become a general manager, we have to, in a elevated, if not a deeply embedded way, think about how accounting connects with financial reporting. We have to think about how marketing adds value to a product we are developing and putting on the market. It also, I think, means we have to be appreciative of the fact that our lives here at the company may be dramatically affected by uh, the local, the mayor, the city council where you're, where you're based. And then maybe beyond that, we have to appreciate uh, the realms that we're not part of, but we encounter, whether it's music, maybe sports, uh, national history, and so on. So I've given, I guess, a maybe overly broad definition of sophistication, but how would you what words would you put to that when it comes to the kind of people you've been working with? Yeah, Well, I think one way to think about that is, what, I think maybe the last stall we have not talked about, which we call the stall in authority. Mm-hmm. And the stall in authority is, I'd ask the question really, really bluntly, why would anybody follow you? It's a great why question, would, by the way. Right? Is it because you're really smart? Uh, probably not. Um, I do an exercise a lot. We talk about it in the book where I'm, where I'm working with groups of people in a more traditional sort of classroom-type leadership um, situation. I say, well, think about the absolute best person you ever worked for. Who was your best boss? And then describe what their characteristics hmm. are. And 90% of them are, you know, understood what I needed, spent time with me, developed me, you know, gave me room to run, but didn't leave me to hang out to dry, you know, uh, gave me visibility, gave me coaching and feedback. Um, that's what makes really, really great leaders. It's not just the technical expertise. We had, um, we were very, very uh, lucky to have uh, Norm Augustine, who's the former chairman and CEO of Lockheed Martin, write the introduction to our book or the forward to our book. And he talked about, um, 
you know, I, he was educated to be an aerospace engineer, truly a mm-hmm. rocket scientist. But in the final decade of his career, he was working only with lawyers and bankers mm-hmm. and politicians. There was nothing he learned in engineering school that equipped him for that change in environment. And if he had said, I'm just going to double down now that I'm the CEO of Lockheed Martin and be the best damn engineer in the house, he wouldn't have been the CEO of Lockheed Martin for very long. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mark, we've got exactly one minute to go. I'm going to take a a final shot at your title of your book, What Happens Now. To our listeners, what line of advice would you have for what happens now? Make the time to think about how you need to constantly reinvent yourself to be the leader your company and your people need you to be. Hmm. And just to get a couple nuances on that, by remaking ourselves, reinventing ourselves, we can do that on a weekend retreat. We can do it over 18 months. What's it going to take, do you think? Uh, I think it's going to take doing it consistently yeah. and holding yourself accountable to doing it, whether that's with your partner, whether that's with your um, a peer, uh, whether it's with a, a mentor, a board member, somebody that you say, I would like to engage you to hold me accountable to not getting lost in the complexity yeah. and to focusing on becoming a more Mark, great point to end on for readers who would like to get a hold of the book. Uh, what happens now? How would they do it? So we have a lovely little website that will um, has some fantastic testimonials and advanced praise. Well, the book is out now, so it's no longer advanced praise. Uh, but it's it's uh, www.whathappensnowbook.com. Hmm. And the book's obviously on Amazon as well and on Barnes & Noble and other places where you can buy books these days. Fantastic. Mark, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We are extremely appreciative. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. And now, uh, just by way of uh, closing, uh, I'm going to do my own personal wrap-up. I don't have two colleagues here to throw ideas back and forth, but I really want you, the listener, now to think about an item or two that you would draw out of this program for future reference. That's why we do the program, is to get some ideas going forward for ourselves um, back to Bill Yo, our first guest tonight. He wrote a, a wonderful book about his father and his time with a family-controlled company. And for me, anyway, from Bill Yo and the account in his book and his commentary tonight, uh, the power and value of the family cannot be overstated. And that uh, comes through in so many ways, whether it's a weekend with your family or, in his case, also working in a family business. Uh, from Mark Nevins, co-author of What Happens Now?, Coming back on this uh, reference I made near the end of our conversation of having a story, a compelling story, a story of yourself and where you're going and why you want to get there. And it does need to be compelling not only to you, but unequivocally the people around you. Uh, There's an art to doing that. It's a little bit storytelling. Uh, It's a practice skill. It's a learned skill. And I reminded my mark that uh, I need to work on that. I think it's a good idea for all of us to give some attention to it. So that's it, folks. I want to thank you for joining us tonight. If you've got a question about our show, you know how to find us. Email us, for example, at businessradio at SiriusXM, one word there, dot com. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at uh, bizradio, one word, B-I-Z-R-A-D-I-O, 111. That's our station channel, of course. want to thank uh, our guests, obviously, Bill Yo and Mark Nevins, uh, both authors of the two interesting books we referred to tonight. Want to thank uh, our producer, Patty Hall, our great sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, as well. I'm Mike Usame. You've been listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Stay tuned. Come back next week. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 